Chapter 7 of The Empty Sack by Basil King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 7 Shall I ever go in or out of this door again? Jenny lingered on the threshold to ask herself this question, and, as she did so, saw Bob Collingham lift his hat. For the time being she had forgotten him. That is, she had a way of putting him out of her mind, except when, as he expressed it to herself, he came bothering her. Bothering her meant asking her to marry him, which he had done perhaps twenty times. Each time she refused him, she considered that it was for good. There was a quality in him that raised her ire, a certainty that, pressed by need, she would one day come to him. That, Jenny said to herself, would be the last thing. She wouldn't do it as long as there was any other possibility on earth. In view, however, of the state of things at home, and Ray's cold-bloodedness at the studio, it had sometimes seemed to her of late as if earth would not afford her any other possibility. If she welcomed him now, it was chiefly as a distraction from thoughts which, were she to keep dwelling on them, would drive her mad. Her temperament being naturally happy, anguished was the more anguishing for being so unnatural. The mere necessity of having to strive with Bob called forth in her that spirit of sex-wrestling which was not so much second nature in her as it was first. She greeted him, therefore, with a sick little smile, and allowed him to limp along beside her. The studio building was in a street in the thirties and east of Lexington Avenue. To take the way by which she usually went, they sauntered towards the sunset. "'You're in trouble, Jenny, aren't you?' The kindly tone touched her. He was always kind. He was always looking for little things he could do. It was part of the trouble with him, from her point of view, that he was so watchful and overshadowing. He poured out so much more than her cup was able to receive that he frightened her. All the same, his sympathy, coming at this minute, started her tears afresh. "'Is it things at home?' he persisted, when she didn't respond. Thinking this enough for him to know, she admitted that it was. "'I've got something in my pocket that would, that would help all that, in the long run.' From anyone else it would have alarmed her. She would have taken it to mean money, money which she would in her own way be expected to repay. As it was, she merely turned her swimming eyes towards him in mild curiosity. Look! Seeing a little white box which could contain nothing but a ring held between his thumb and forefinger on the edge of his waistcoat pocket, she flushed with annoyance. I think you'd better go away, she said coldly, pausing to give him the chance to take his leave. "'And chuck you back upon your trouble?' The argument was more effective than he knew. Jenny became aware that even this little bit of drama had put home conditions and raised cruelty a perceptible distance behind her. It was sheer terror of being thrown on them again that induced her to walk on, tacitly permitting him to stay with her. "'You can't be saved from one kind of trouble by getting into another,' she argued ungraciously. "'The fire's not much of a relief from the frying-pan.' "'It is, if it doesn't burn you, if it only warms and comforts you and makes it easier to live. "'This fire would burn me to death.' "'Oh, no, it wouldn't, because I'd be there. "'I'd be the stoker, to see that it was kept in the furnace. "'The furnace in the house, Jenny, is like the heart in the body, "'something out of sight, but hot and glowing and cheering everybody up.' "'If she could have listened to such words from Hubert Ray,' she thought, "'how enraptured she would have been.' 
"'Did you ever hear the story of the guy who gave us fire in the first place?' Bob continued as she walked on and said nothing. "'You know we didn't have any fire on earth. At least, that's the tune to which the rig is sung. The gods had fire in heaven, but men had to, to shiver.' "'Why didn't they freeze to death?' Well, "'They did, in a parable way. "'It wasn't life they lived. "'It was a great big creeping horror on the edge of nothing. "'Then this old bird, I forget his name, went up to heaven. "'How did he do that?' Oh, "'The story doesn't tell. "'But up he went, stole the fire, and brought it down. "'After that they were able to open the ball we call civilization, "'which gives everyone a good time. "'How does it? Much you know.' "'I know this much, Jenny, that I could give you a good time if you'd let me.' "'You couldn't give me the good time I want.' "'But I could make you want the good time I'd give you, which would come to the same thing. "'I imagine the folks on earth didn't think much of the far from heaven beforehand, "'but once they got it, they knew what it meant to them. "'That's the way you'd feel, Jenny, if you'd married me. "'You can't begin to fancy now—' On coming in sight of a line of taxicabs drawn up before her hotel, he broke off to say, "'Do you see those taxis, Jenny?' She replied that she did. "'Well, one of them may mean a great deal to you and me.' "'Which one of them?' "'Whichever one we get into.' "'Why should we get into it?' "'Because—he tapped the white box in his waistcoat pocket—this little thing I've got in here wouldn't do us any good without something else. We should have to go after it together.' Her mystified expression told him that she was in the dark. "'It's something we should have to ask for, and to, to sign. Robert Bradley Collingham, bachelor, and Jane Scarborough Follett, spinster. I believe that's the way it runs.' "'Oh!' The low ejaculation was just enough to show that she understood. "'Why shouldn't we, Jenny? It wouldn't take half an hour to get there and back.' "'Back?' She was so dazed that she echoed the word more or less unconsciously. They came in sight of a low brown tower at which he pointed with his stick. "'Do you see that church?' "'Well, that church has got a parson. Quite a decent sort for a parson.' "'How do you know?' "'Because I talked to him about half an hour ago. I said that if he was going to be at home we might look in on him toward the end of the afternoon.' "'You had no right to say anything of the kind.' "'I know I hadn't.' "'But I took a chance. "'Won't you take a chance too, Jenny? "'It would mean the beginning of the end of all your troubles. "'In the long run, if not in the short run, "'I could take them off your hands.' "'That she should be dead to this argument was not in human nature. "'Her basic conception of a man was of one who would relieve her of her burdens. "'Helplessness was a large part of her appeal. "'That marriage meant being taken care of, imparted, according to her thinking, its chief common sense to the institution. She shrank from marriage just to be taken care of, but if there was no other way, and if in this way she could bring to the family the stupendous Collingham connection in lieu of her six a week, she made up her mind to temporise. "'What makes you in such an awful hurry? We could do it any other day.' "'Did you ever see a sick man who wasn't in an awful hurry to get well?' "'You're not as bad as all that.' "'Listen, Jenny,' he said, with an ardour enhanced by her hints at relenting. "'Listen, and I'll tell you what I am. "'I'm like a chap that's been cut in two, "'who only lives because he knows the other half will be joined to him again.' "'That's all very well, but where's the other half?' "'Here,' 
He touched her lightly on the arm. You're the other half of me, Jenny. I'm the other half of you. She laughed ruefully. That's news to me. I thought it might be. That's why I'm telling you. You don't suppose any other fellow would be to you what I'd be, do you? I don't know what you'd be to me, because I've so many other things to think of first. What sort of things? What your folks would say, for one. He replied with a shade of embarrassment. They say some pretty mean things, to begin with. And to end with? They give in. They'd have to. Families always do when you only leave them Hobson's choice. She dropped into the studio idiom. That wouldn't be all pie for me, would it? Is anything ever all pie? You've got to work for your living in this old world if you want to eat. I'm ready to work for this, Jenny. I'm ready to move mountains for it, and by God I'm going to move them. But do you know why? She said shyly. I suppose because you like me. I don't know whether I do or not. That's not what I think about first. Though they had not yet reached the line of taxicabs, he paused to make an explanation. Suppose you were inventing a machine, and had got it pretty well fitted together, only that you couldn't make it work. And suppose one day you found the very part that was missing, the thing that would make it run. You know you'd have to have that one thing, wouldn't you? You'd have to have it, or your life wouldn't be worth while. I never heard any other man talk like that. Listen, Jenny, there are men and men. They'll go into two big bunches. To one kind, women are like whisky, some better than others, but all good. If they can't have Mary, Susan'll do, and when they're tired of Susan, they'll run after Anne. That's one kind of fellow, and he's in the great majority. They're polygamous by nature, those chaps. I suppose the Lord made them so. Anyhow, as far as I can see, and I've seen pretty far, they can't help themselves. He drew a long breath. Then there's another kind. If Jenny listened with attention, it was not because she was interested in him, but in Hubert Ray. Hubert had more than once said things of the same kind. He had declared male constancy to be outside the possibilities of flesh and blood, and, with her preference for cavemen, Jenny had agreed with him. That is, she had agreed with him as to everyone but himself. Others could take their pleasure where and as they found it. But she could not conceive of any man loving her, or of herself loving any man, unless it was for life. On the subject of constancy or inconstancy, this was her sole reservation. "'You'll think me an awful chump, Jenny, but I'm that other kind.' She threw him a sidelong glance of some perplexity. "'You mean the kind that—' "'I'm not polygamous,' he declared, as one who confessed a criminal tendency. "'There it is, laid out flat, I'm—' He hesitated before using the term, lest she might not understand it. "'There's a word for my kind,' he went on tenderly. "'It's monogamous.' She made a little sound of dismay at the strangeness, it almost seemed the indecency, of the syllables. "'Yes, I thought you might never have heard of it,' he pursued in the same tender strain. "'But it means the opposite of polygamous. A polygamous guy wants to marry all the wives he can make love to. A one-wife chap like me asks for nothing so much as to be true to the girl he loves. I'm that kind, Jenny.' To his amazement, and somewhat to his joy, he saw a tear trickle down her cheek. It was a tear of regret that Hubert couldn't have expressed himself like this, but Bob thought her touched by his appeal. 
It encouraged him to continue with accentuated warmth. "'You've heard of what they call the Battle of the Sexes, haven't you?' She thought she had. "'Well, that's what it comes from, chiefly. The crowds of polygamous men, and the small number of polygamous women. Or else it's the crowds of monogamous women, and the small number of monogamous men. Out of every hundred men, about ninety are polygamous, and ten want only one woman for a lifetime. Out of every hundred women, ninety are satisfied to love one man, and the other ten are rovers. Don't you see what a bad fit it makes?' "'Yes, but how do you know I'm not one of the rovers?' "'You couldn't be, Jenny. Even though I thought you might be, I'd be willing to take a chance. And the reason I've spun this rigmarole to you is because, if you don't take me, it'll be ten to one that you'll fall into the hands of one of the gay ninety who'll make your life a hell. I'd hate that. God, how I should hate it. Even if I didn't care anything about you, I should want to marry you, just to save you from some fancy man who'd think no more of breaking your heart than he would of smashing an eggshell.' As they walked on toward the row of public conveyances, he explained himself further. On Monday next he might sail for South America, but he couldn't do this leaving everything at loose ends between them. If she married him, he could go off with an easy mind, and they could keep their secrets till his return. In the meanwhile, he would be able to supply her with a little cash. Not much, he was afraid, as Dad kept so tight a rubber band round the pocket-book. It would, however, be something— and he would know that she could give up her work at the studio without danger of starving to death. "'And you might as well do it first as last, Jenny,' he summed up, "'because I mean that you shall do it some time.' "'And suppose,' she objected, "'that you came back from South America in six months' time and were sorry. Where should I be then?' He argued that this was impossible. A monogamous man always knew his mate as a monogamous bird knew his was instinct that told them both, and instinct never went wrong. They reached the row of taxis, and in spite of the queer looks of the passers-by, he took her by the hand. "'Come, Jenny, come.' But she hung back. "'Oh, Bob, how can I, all of a sudden like this?' "'It might as well be all of a sudden as any other way, since you're my woman and I'm your man.' "'But I don't believe it.' "'Then I'll prove to you that it's so.' that he could not do this. She went with him in the end. She was not one. She was not more moved by his suit than she had been at other times. She still shrank from the scar on his brow and the touch of his tremendous hands. But she was afraid of letting him go, of dropping back into the horror of no lover in the studio and no money to bring home. To do this thing would save her from that emptiness, even if it led to something worse." Worse would be easier to bear than returning to nothing but a void. And so, slowly, reluctantly, with anguish in her heart, she let herself be helped into the shabby vehicle. An hour or so later, Teddy reached home. He arrived breathless because he had run nearly all the way from the streetcar. In the empty spaces of Indiana Avenue, he felt himself conspicuous. He knew it was fancy that no hint of his folly could have come to this quiet suburb, and that his theft could not possibly be discovered as yet, even by those most concerned. But he was not used to a guilty conscience. Already in imagination he saw himself tried, sentenced, and serving a long sentence at Bitterwell, of which he had once seen the grim grey walls. "'God, I'd shoot myself first, was his comment to himself as he hurried past the trim grass plots where carefree men in shirt-sleeves were watering their bits of lawn.
It was Pansy who first knew that something was amiss. At the sound of his hand on the doorknob, she had come scampering with little silvery yelps, and had suddenly been checked by the atmosphere he threw out. Pansy knew what wrongdoing was. She knew the pangs of remorse. She had once run away from being shut up in the coal-bin, her fate when the family went to the movies, and had been lost for half a day. The agony of being adrift, and the joy of seeing Gussie come whistling and calling down the palisade walk, formed the great central escapade in Pansy's memory. For days afterward, whenever the family spoke of it, she would stand with forepaws planted apart, and head hanging dejectedly, aware that no terms could be scathing enough fully to cover her guilt. And here was Teddy in the same state of mind. Pansy had learned that the great race could suffer, but she hadn't supposed that it could get into scrapes like herself. All she could do on second thoughts was to creep forward timidly, raise herself on her hind legs with her paws against his shin, and tell him that whatever the trouble was, she had been through it all. He paid her no attention, because, as he looked into the living-room, Gladys was seated at a table, crying, her hands covering her face. At the same time, Gussie was peacocking up and down the room, saying things to her little sister that were apparently not comforting. Now that Gussie, at Madame Corinne's request, had put up her hair, her great beauty was apparent. Her face had not the guileless purity of Jenny's, but it had more intellectual vigour and much more fire. Gladys was Teddy's pet, as she was her father's. Of the three girls she was the plain one, a little red-haired, snub-nosed thing, with some resemblance to Pansy and a heart of gold. Teddy went over and laid his hand on her fiery crown. "'Say, poor kid, little kiddie, what's the matter?' "'It's my feet,' Gladys moaned. "'And she thinks that learning the millinery at three-fifty per is all jazz and catstep,' Gussie declared grandly. "'Well, let her try it and see. She's welcome, my soul and body. Corin wouldn't blow her across the river when she got into a temper. I say that if you're a cash-girl you've got to take the drawbacks of a cash-girl, and what's the use of kicking? If you're on your feet, you're on your feet. Rub em with oil and buck up. That's what I say.' "'It's all very well for you to talk, spit-cat,' Gladys reported. "'All you've got to do is to play with ribbons, as if you were dressing a doll. "'If you had to run like pansy every time some stut-up thing called cash!' "'Gussie undulated her person and her outstretched arms in sheer joy of the dancing-step "'as she strutted up and down. "'That's right, old girl. Blame it on me. I'm always the one that's in the wrong in this house. "'If Master Tiddy lets a glass fall and breaks it, as he did last night, "'I push it out of his hand on purpose, though I'm in the next room.' "'All the same. I say, buck up, and I don't care who says different. "'Sniffing won't cure your feet or give you a brother like Fred Ingalls "'who can pay for a woman to do all the heavy work, "'and his mother hardly lifting a hand.' "'Teddy passed on to the kitchen to see if his mother was there. "'She was seated at a table with a ham-bone before her, "'and from it was paring the last rags of the meat. "'He tried to take his old-time tone of gaiety. "'Hello, Ma. At it again. What are you giving us for supper? "'Something good, I'll bet.' Lizzie went on working without lifting her eyes. She didn't even smile. Teddy sensed something new in the way of care, as Pansy had sensed it in him. He stood at a little distance, waiting for the look that had never failed to welcome him, but which this time didn't come. "'What's the matter, Ma? Has anything gone wrong?' Putting down the ham, Lizzie raised her eyes, though with no light in them. "'It's nothing so very wrong, dear,' 
but I haven't told your sisters, because it's no use to worry them if— What is it, Ma? Out with it. She told him. If it was necessary to go without a hot meal between Wednesday and Saturday, of course it could be done. But even on Saturday the gas people would demand fifteen dollars on account before the gas would be turned on again. There were just two possibilities. The father might come home with the news that he'd found a job, or Teddy might have— She didn't believe it, but he talked of saving for a new suit of clothes. Teddy might have fifteen dollars laid away. He turned his back and walked out of the kitchen. He did it so significantly that it seemed to the mother there could be only one meaning to the act. He'd saved the money and resented being robbed of it. She knew he was something of a coxcomb, and had always been proud that he could look so neat. He had only two suits, a common one and a best one, but even the common one was as brushed and pressed and stylish as if he had a valet. Nevertheless, his great activity and his love of rough-and-tumble skylarking made him hard on clothes in the sense of wear and the common one was growing shiny at the seams and thin where there was most attrition. A new suit was an urgent necessity, that if he had a few dollars put away towards getting it, it would be no wonder if it hurt him to be asked to give them up. But Teddy had no few dollars put away. When the fund for the new suit could be counted otherwise than in pennies, some special need had always swept it into the family treasury. Teddy had let it go without a sigh, he would have let it go without a sigh to-day, only that he had nothing saved. Being naturally of a loving, caretaking disposition, it meant more to him that Gussie or Gladys should have a new pair of shoes than that he should be able to emulate Fred Ingalls in ordering a suit at Love's. Having left the kitchen, he did not go farther than the living-room, where, Gussie having taken herself upstairs, Gladys was drying her eyes. He merely walked to the end of the room, his hands in his pockets, as he stared above one of the hydrangea trees into Indiana Avenue. The windows being open, the voices of playing children mingled with the even song of birds. To Teddy there was mockery in these cheerful sounds, there was mockery in the westering May sunshine, mockery in the groups of girls, bareheaded and arm in arm, as they strolled towards Palisade Walk, mockery in the ruddy-faced men who watered their shrubs and grass, mockery in the aproned women who came to windows or doors in the intervals of preparing supper. It all spoke of a homey comfort and content, with no bluff behind it. In the Follett House, all was bluff and misery. Somehow, for reasons he couldn't fathom, the cutting off of the gas from the rains seemed the last humiliation. In the matter of food, if one thing was too dear, you could eat another. So it was in the whole round of essentials in living. You could get a substitute, or you could go without but for heat there was no substitute, and you couldn't go without it. It ranked with clothes and shelter as a necessity even among savages. And yet here they were, a civilised family, living in a civilised house, in a suburb of New York, deprived of what even micmacs could have at will. It was one of the happenings that could never have been foreseen as possibilities. His hands being in his pockets, Teddy fingered the twenty-dollar bill. He did this unconsciously merely because it was there. It did occur to him to wish it was his own, but his wishes went no farther. They had gone no farther when he swung on his heel to go back to the kitchen. He must tell his mother that he didn't have fifteen dollars put away. He hadn't done so at once, merely because his emotions had been too strong for him. 
he pulled his burly figure down the length of the room, as one who has to drag himself along. If he'd only been Fred Ingalls, he would have handed his mother a sheaf of bills with instructions to buy all she wanted. Why couldn't he, Teddy Follett, do the same? He was, as Gussie phrased it, a great big fellow of twenty-one, and his value was only eighteen per. He proved that to his own satisfaction, for, in secretly trying to unearth a better place, he'd been offered less than he got at Collingham and Law's. What were the shackles that bound him? Were they of his own creation, or were they forced on him by the world outside? He was as industrious as his father had been, and, except for a tendency to do his work with a broad grin, just as whole-hearted. If good intentions had commercial value, both father and son should have been rated high. But here was his father, a bit of old junk, while he himself, having reached man's estate, having served his country, having tacitly offered himself to the limit of his strength, was rewarded with a wage on which he could hardly live, to say nothing of helping others live. Madly, wildly, these thoughts churned in his mind as he lurched down the room towards the kitchen, while Pansy watched him with a look into which she was putting all her soul. He knew what he would say. He would say, "'Ma, it's no go. I haven't a red cent. We've got to eat cold, and what cold till Saturday, anyhow. We'll not look farther ahead than that. When Saturday comes, we'll see.' But on the threshold of the kitchen he saw something which brought a new sensation. In free fights while in the Navy he had thought he had seen red, but he had never seen red like this. He had never supposed it possible that this torrent of wrath, tenderness, and pity should rise within himself, a fountain spouting at the same time both sweet water and bitter. His mother was seated at the table, crying. The ham-bone was before her, the rags of meat on the plate, and the knife on top of them. But she, like Gladys a few minutes previously, had covered her face with her hands while her shoulders rocked. In all his twenty-one years Teddy had never seen his mother cry. He had cried, the girls had cried, his father had very nearly cried, but his mother never. The strong spirit had grieved in strong ways, but not in this way. Now it seemed as if all the griefs she had laid up since the days when she was Lizzie Scarborough had heaped themselves to the point at which these strange, harsh, unnatural tears were their only assuagement. Teddy was down on his knees beside her, his arms flung round her neck. "'Ma, good old Ma, dear old Ma, don't cry. For God's sake, don't cry. Stop crying, Ma!' he shouted in an imploring passion as strange, harsh, and unnatural as her own. "'Here's the money I've saved for my new clothes. Take it and go and pay something on the gas bill. There, there, stop, for God's sake, for your little boy's sake. I love you, Ma. Only stop. There. That's better. Calm down, Ma.' "'Everything will be all right, and I'll, I'll get the new clothes by and by.' But in his heart he was saying, "'To hell with Collingham and Laws,' as he laid the bill before her. End of chapter 7